Welcome into the Monday Morning Cornerback Podcast. This is Eric McKinney, joined by Daryl Rideau. Daryl, USC 43, UCLA 38. And, and we'll break down kind of the, the ins and outs and big plays and, and what we took, took away from, you know, kind of, kind of the minute details of it. But just starting off, big picture, that game, being able to kind of watch, you know, specifically the second half and, and those two teams back and forth and, and trading touchdowns, a, a high scoring, really entertaining game. I, I'm just kind of curious, your, your, your thoughts, just being able to, to watch that game kind of sitting back as a former player. Yes. And, and a guy who's breaking things down, but just kind of as a, as a fan of USC, as a fan of college football. Eric, uh, bottom line was it was a fun game to watch, you know, in a season that just brought so much emotion and just, you know, where there is nothing normal about this particular year in the middle of a pandemic and all that USC has had to overcome, all that we as fans have had to overcome, absent of being able to physically be at a game. It was fun to watch a UCLA team coming to come into this contest to defend the Rose Bowl, the honor within the Rose Bowl, and have a solid game plan and live up to that game plan, but execute at such a high level. And shout out, you know, to Dorian Thompson Robinson, DTR. Uh, he went 30 of 36 for 364 yards and four touchdowns. And on, on a normal given game, Eric, that's enough to beat any team. But the, the, out of the six completions or incompletions, USC found a way defensively to turn two out of six of those incompletions into key turnovers. But, but overall, it was just a game that I really enjoyed watching. Now, as a fan and as, a for, as an alumni and as a former player, you never want to see USC on the backside, uh, you know, going into the fourth quarter of a losing contest. It, it, but I love the fact that it really revealed character. It showed us what this team was made of. And it also revealed a lot about some of the experience that they gained by starting the season off and having to climb and dig themselves out of a hole with four minutes or less to go in the first two contests against Arizona State and Arizona. Didn't we? I mean, I don't know about you, Eric, but going into the fourth quarter when they were down as much as 18 points and you saw them starting to climb back in it, was there ever once a doubt in your mind because of what we've seen earlier in the season that a Keaton Slovis-led offense, as long as there was time on the clock, wouldn't have a puncher's chance to get back into this game? At 28-10, yeah. I, I, absolutely. I thought it was over. UCLA scores going into half. They get the ball back. They score a touchdown again. I, for, for me, I didn't think it would turn into just this USC rolling over and, and it's just a, a 40 point blowout or anything like that. But I thought that that was too much. The way USC was playing to that point, that is a really difficult thing to be able to sort of dig yourself out of that kind of hole when you have no momentum. If you're playing well and, you know, there's some bounces that don't go your way early and, and that kind of thing, I could see sort of being able to regroup and, and okay, we're, we're playing really well, but boy, they had to catch themselves in a deep, deep hole. And, and maybe this is something where having no fans at the Rose Bowl, you can do that because the, you know, you're only fighting against kind of the, the, the there's no external, Right. Pressure or anything, right? It's a, it's right. as loud as the UCLA bench 
can get yeah. and you can kind of create your own thing to match them over there. But boy, when UCLA tacked those two touchdowns on, uh, I thought it, it was done. When USC then comes back and goes on their, the 75 yard uh, touchdown drive, seven plays, 75 yards. And then you realize like, okay, they've scored now on three straight possessions. Yep. Maybe they're starting to figure this out. And, and then it was absolutely, you are right. At that point, you start going into, okay, that, you know, they're still in this. And I remember we talked about that after Arizona state yeah. and after Arizona, and you said, Hey, this is, these are the kind of wins that you can think about down the, down the line games yes. that you maybe in other years, you know, you, you could roll over and, Hey, I don't know if we have it in us. I, I remember you talking about that. No, once you know <laughs> yeah. that you can do it, that's something you can, that, that's a well that you can go back to later on. Right. In and, but, but, you know, the, the thing about this game for me that just really stood out was that much held true to form about UCLA. They had another explosive second quarter where they put up 14 points. And then coming out of halftime, they tacked on another 14. So that was 28 points within, you know, two quarters right there. But the one thing that changed for USC all season long was up until this game against UCLA, all season long, they failed to put up points in the fourth or in the third quarter. Touchdowns, no touchdowns. No touchdowns in the third quarter all season until this game. Absolutely. All season. And they needed every bit of that to just be competitive and stay in this game. And the other thing that, that, um, that you have to give USC credit for was early in the game, late in the first half, they committed to running the ball. Even when they weren't having true success, they played the numbers game. They committed to running the ball. And what did that do? It just felt like those body shots that UCLA was taking was eventually going to catch up to them and wear them down. And while it may not have weared them down physically to the point where they were busting coverages, it took a mental toll on them because it allowed for USC to be balanced just enough to take advantage and exploit weaknesses. But give a lot of credit. And the reason why I'm loving up UCLA is because I'm trying to, to demonstrate that there's an apex to all of this, right? They were playing as good as they were going to play. And so it forced USC to have to fight to win the game. And that's what I thought came out of this. The character of USC, the character of Clay Hilton's coaching staff of really making in-game adjustments, something that I've never given them credit for, something that has been very difficult for us to even demonstrate that adjustments are being made. But when you think about how this game played out, USC was getting beat on alignment, something simple as just getting lined up because of all the multiple um, formations that UCLA Chip Kelly was showing, um, getting in and out of the uh, out of the huddle quickly and, and snapping the ball faster than USC could get themselves lined up, and unfortunately, it led to what. Um, well, the first, the first touchdown, I mean, the, the first touchdown, UCLA has three wide receivers uh, to the left side of the field. And I don't know if USC got a, a defender over there. Maybe one guy <laughs> eventually got over there. But right. all, the other 10 guys are looking at the sideline, basically, when that ball is snapped. And, yeah, you're sitting there saying you, you go against an a, a, a offense that can go tempo in practice. That surprised me that they yeah. got caught so out of sorts on on a lot of those kind of hurry up things because chip kelly i mean a chip kelly offense yeah he's not at oregon anymore but he kind of created that that 
high speed tempo, that I mean, high speed tempo. It, but but it, certainly it, shined a lot of light on it and, and showed people what it could do. And, and we thought about this going into the game. We thought, okay, Chip Kelly was going to test how smart is USC. Mm -hmm. Can they find themselves getting lined up when they start going end over slot, meaning that it's an off-balance line where you have maybe a, a guard and a tight end on one side and two tackles on the same side of, uh, of the field. And really it just becomes a blocking assignment nightmare, especially when there's only a finite amount of time you have in practice to prepare for games. And now you have to all of a sudden start counting bodies on the wrong side uh, of the center. It is the most difficult and most challenging thing because it's something that you don't see week in and week out. But it's something that a team like Stanford, a team like Notre Dame would routinely do against a team like USC. But when you get Chip Kelly and UCLA playing at that tempo in a Demetric Felton, a kid who USC, who's going to give USC problems for years. This dude is a Swiss Army knife. Whether it was out of the backfield, whether it was running the ball, you just felt like he was the most explosive person on the field. Despite a team of USC littered with stars, early in that game, Felton for UCLA number 10 felt like a star among stars. So give a lot of credit to that side. But now let me flip back over. Um, it was, for me, it was very visible that the mere fact that USC knew that this game going into it before the game even started because of the results of the Friday Washington, I believe Washington, Oregon game being canceled. If, if, if I understand that correctly. Well, so uh, that, that did the North just kind of for housekeeping. So USC had clinched the South coming into this game because Utah was able to beat Colorado earlier that day. And, and that I immediately had questions when that happened. Would USC be up for this? And, and boy, I thought the answer would be absolutely. It's UCLA. You right. can go undefeated. That this is a huge game. They will be up for it. And, and it felt like that didn't happen early on. I, I don't know if that's kind of the, the point that you were getting it, into. That, and that's what I was going to say. USC knew basically who their opponent was because uh, Utah beat Colorado. And now they knew that, okay, they were the, the front runners to defend the Pac-12 South in the championship playing uh, next week or this upcoming Friday uh, for, a, you know, the Pac-12 championship. Human nature tells you, okay, it's a letdown. I almost wish that, 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 that the coaches would not allow for, the, for any of the players watch the game or would not allow for any of them to check their, uh, their, their media timelines because knowing that, human nature, you start to ease up and relax. And that's what I thought happened. I thought that they came out a little flat. I thought that they came out a little content and, and, and you know, and, um, and felt, and, and it really felt and showcased that they weren't up for the task early in the game. But as the game wore on, I think that that's where pride kicked in. And, you know, make no mistake about it, it's still a rivalry game. But the rivalry game oftentimes takes on meaning when there is something up for grabs. And for UCLA to play the role of spoiler, you know, was, was the indication that I got that they were going into this game with the chip on their shoulder, no pun intended, from their head coach. But for, for USC's perspective, you know, uh, this is UCLA, they're a 50-50 ball. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, we should beat up on them. And that's the, that entitlement is what you felt until they started getting punched in the mouth. And eventually you get punched in the mouth so much, you wake up. And you wake up to a, 
you know, to, to a, a, a fight, a dog fight, that you now have to identify opportunities. You know you can't get back into a game when you find yourselves 18 points down um, immediately. But what you have to do is you have to exploit opportunities when opportunities come. And for USC, I thought that that one opportunity that really kind of changed the momentum of the game, I don't know about you, Eric, but for me, it was, I can't tell you, for, you know, as I go back and I look at this, for the life of me, why the punter didn't just try to shank or kick that ball down the field, uh, but he tried to play hero ball. <laughs> I mean, you it's, know. One of, it's one of those plays where you, where you have to look at it four or five times, and then you try to see what the coach's reaction is, and it's like, was that, was that called? Was that something that he just, you know, he just did? But, yeah, I mean, so, so at that point, USC, that, that's the UCLA drive after USC – uh, Tyler Vaughn sort of takes over a drive, yeah. catches three yes. straight passes, and a just a, a you know it's one of those games where you're trying to figure out like what's the play of the game, what's the play of the game, and you can talk about five plays and yeah. still not talk about what maybe the play of the game was. But but Tyler Vaughn's that catch, the 38 yard touchdown grab where he's laid oh. out and, and that diving catch, it absolutely belongs kind of up in that you right. know that discussion. Uh, but that's the drive that, that I had just talked about where UCLA scores to open the third quarter. Uh, USC gets that, and then UCLA did that. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> right, right. and then USC takes that ball and, and scores another touchdown, and, and then it's, you know, then it's game on. And, well, but so but that and was, you, you that talk about those golden Falka moments. Making a play. There was golden moments all throughout the game, offensively and defensively. And, and we talked about when you play in a rival game like UCLA, that pirouette catch was Lynn Swan-esque, okay? And I know that, that might be blasphemy right now, and I'm not talking about athletic director Lynn Swan, but I'm talking about the, the, the magnificent athlete at wide receiver that, that you know, that donned the cardinal and gold wearing number 22. Uh, the way that Tyler Vaughn's, pirouette in the air can kind of contort his body right to adjust it to catch that pass uh, for, for the touchdown was uh, amazing but you know if I were ranking the two I would have to say the the play with Drake London <laughs> I mean till this day I still can't figure out how he was able to maintain his balance and, and kind of rumble and stumble his way into the end zone but but those two plays on the offensive side, probably epitomized the outer body experience efforts that it took for uh, Hufanga and and um, uh, the other safety, um, Palomao. Yeah, Isaiah Palomao. You know, the plays that they made were exceptional interceptions too. So you, you talk about a game where you needed your playmakers to make plays. They showed up. And that's the fun part of this game. That's the part that I'm like, you know, look, in, in a rivalry game, you almost have to throw out the fact that teams are going to score, okay? So you're not going to play your cleanest football. You're going to find mistakes, but you just don't want those mistakes to be repetitive mistakes. You get it. Teams are going to game plan, and they're going to catch you in a situation, and, they're gonna, and you're going to fall for the okie doke. It happens all the time, okay? But the thing I loved about this game was – it was those blows. It was the fact that you, you see UCLA delivered their best shot and it just wasn't good enough. Look, as a former player, I can live with getting blown out, 
But the part that haunts you, <laughs> Eric, is when you believe that you have this game under control. You put up 549 points. Your quarterback only, only has six incompletions, and it wasn't enough. You put up, you know, 38 points, and you're leading by 18, and it wasn't enough. Those are the things that haunt you because you started to rehearse play after play after play. Now flip that on the other side. Because you're USC and you've been in these crunch time moments, you know, you do not blink when, when adversity faces you. And give a lot of credit to Harold Graham, um, at, at Graham Harrell, rather, uh, offensive coordinator, and Todd Orlando, just their poise the voice that they give in the room, the confidence that they exude, maybe that's enough right now to create that belief within this program because we already know who the constant is, Clay Helton. So it's hard to give too much credit to Clay Helton when you're the constant throughout the five years where the program was in, was in shambles. But as of late, the fact that there's always a fighting chance, you now have to look at, okay, what's different in your room? Is it your coaches? Is it your position coaches? You, and you have to start giving credit to the coordinators, the adjustments that are being made, you know, taking your ego out of it and saying, yeah, okay, we kind of screwed up. Last week we were one-sided, but can you blame us? I mean, look, the, the matchups were there and we took advantage of them against Washington State. Now you come back and you demonstrate early in the game behind um, Malapai, you just keep pounding them with body shots, body shots, body shots. And you force now the safeties to come in the box for those one-on-one -on -one matchups. And the moment that you got the matchups that you were looking for, you got Keaton Slovis, who's smart enough, who has a great understanding, a high intellect, understanding where those matchups are, and he takes advantage and he exploits them. But, you know, Tyler Bonds, you talked about him going home to Pasadena, where, where everything started from him as a kid, you know, hovering around the Rose Bowl, to, to have a game like this as a senior where your team needed you most, shout outs to him and the other seniors that stepped up and played big. And, and part of that is just, you know, you, you talk about the malaise and then waking up. Part of that is, boy, it is nice to be USC, right? Where you, you have a Drake London. You have a Drake Jackson on the other side. You have a Talanoa Hufanga. I mean, the, the guys that you talk about, they made play. I mean, Drake London is, is corralled at the 25-yard line. The ball pops up out of his head. I mean, that's, that's either a tackle or a fumble or something, and he, and he scores a touchdown on that and play. He scores I mean, a that, touchdown. There, there's guys at USC that can make those plays, and it's, you know, it, it's one of a handful of programs that always – always has those guys you know you talk about ucla yes you talk about Dimitri felton you know like yes. he's been there at ucla for a long time he's had a lot of performances like this it's felt like during his tenure there if he doesn't do it nobody will and he's got to be superhuman for them to win i mean usc's got a bunch of those guys drake jackson had a big fourth down stop talano hafanga had an unbelievable read on that interception uh, Hunter Eccles has a big fourth down stop. Like they, they had guys all over the place making big plays when they needed it. And what about Gary Bryant's kickoff return? And maybe that's the play of the game. Uh, again, maybe we've talked about how game. many yes. plays and then we haven't talked about maybe what the play of the game is. <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, you know, it, I didn't see that coming. I, 
I'm telling you, because normally that's a routine play, you know, but, but, but a guy who virtually doesn't get a lot of carries, doesn't get a lot of reps, isn't really factored, but you know he's special. And you know it was just a matter of time before number one would finally have an opportunity to kind of showcase and to feel ingratiated within this rival, within this rivalry game. Um, that is his moment. So far in his young career, that was his moment. And it couldn't have come at a bigger point in the game where you thought, okay, is you, you know, maybe SC is going to try to play for a field goal, um, you know, just, just, just to try to try to make a game out of it. But when, when Gary Bryant Jr. hit that scene and it just ignited and erupted USC sideline without any fans in the stands, the energy, you just felt it being zapped out of the Bruins and, and just really energized USC. Those Trojans were on fire at that point. And, and it was so nice that it was, it was Gary Bryant. He had kind of the, the you know, not a massive game against Washington State, but certainly, you know, four catches and kind of his coming out and, okay, he's going to be more involved in the offense. And, and his only offensive touch was that kind of early pitch in the backfield where he loses six yards and it's like, what, what, are, what are we doing with the running game? And what, you know, like, where did that come in? And, and so for him to have that moment and, and be able to kind of shift that narrative back and, and like you said, so much expected from him over the next few years. That was a really nice moment for me. I, I want to get back to something and, and let you talk defense a little bit. Uh, what what happened? When UCLA is kind of running, you know, at will and, and moving the ball, and it's not like they were ever completely shut down, but USC was able to make those plays in the second half, the plays they needed uh, it, it was the offense scoring a lot of points, but uh, outside of that, you know, that, that just crushing uh, touchdown pass to the tight end way down the middle, uh, the, the defense felt kind of more buttoned up and, and like they could uh, counter the things that, that UCLA was doing. What, what did you see sort of, you know, the, the demarcation line is kind of easy first half to second half, even though there, there were a couple plays in the second half where, uh, UCLA kind of did get the better, but but was there anything specific you saw, or or just kind of playing emotionally, or or anything like that that went into USC being able to get it done defensively? I, I thought every I thought it really boiled down to trust, trust in the game plan, trust in the calls, trust what your eyes are seeing, and being able to articulate that back to the coaches. Okay, this was a game where Marlon uh, Tui Pelotu didn't have a huge game. Okay. His brother did, okay? Thule is something special, <laughs> okay? He came alive. I just thought that in the second half, the first half, okay, I thought that USC just always felt a step behind. Rather, it was getting aligned properly, getting the right run fits, and being in a position to make plays. In the second half, I, I thought that the experience of this team, having played together and communicating uh, the assignments and being able to execute, getting the proper fits and getting in position to where they were taking away some of the, the guard uh, tackle pulls, beating them to the mark. In the second half, it just felt you, like USC on the defensive line got their second win. But also the, 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 the adjustments that were being made by Todd Orlando, moving Drake Jackson and uh, Tuli, Tui Pelotu, number 49, 
in, in 99 respectively, Drake Jackson, moving them out to what we call a wide nine technique, giving them arrows, angles, 45 degree angles downhill to collapse the, uh, the pockets back in. Whereas early in the game, they were kind of head up on the, uh, on the, the tackles and tight ends. And, and so it, 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 it gave UCLA kind of um, the advantage from an angle standpoint, it allowed them to get sealed on the corners. But when they, um, when Drake Jackson kind of stood up and he became that Leo, that position that we were accustomed to seeing in the past, for those of you USC fans who are old enough to remember when Willie McGinnis played the position and he played that Leo technique, that outside weak side linebacker in a three, four, how he, um, he, he could take over a game as an edge rusher. That's what we're seeing from Jake Jackson. He's picking his moments and he's taking them and he's effectively impacting the game without ever making the true play. But on the opposite side, he now has a counterparty in Tui Pelotu, uh, Tui Pelotu, who is coming into his own. This kid was like, what, had, you know, four tackles, of, uh, you know, five assisted. It was just in, in, in a sack. But it's, it's the defensive line's ability to take over games when you need them most. And no play um, is greater illustrated than when UCLA needed, it was like fourth and, fourth and two or fourth and three, and UCLA truly needed Keegan Jones to run up the gut. And he was not comfortable hitting that crease, and he tried to hit it outside. And he went east and west. And you watch that defensive line swarm and collapse on him, preventing UCLA from converting the fourth down. When they were going tempo up until that point, and you thought that they had the numbers, but they, for one reason or another, they did not snap the ball when they had the balance. And they left their best player on the sideline, Demetric Felton. And I know that you have some thoughts on that, but it, it just goes back to further illustrate that this is a veteran group defensively, that if you have a weakness, they will try to exploit your weakness. This is not the greatest team in the country, so I'm not trying to, trying to draw that comparison, okay, on whether or not they should be, um, you know, considered for the top four playoff team. That's not for me to discuss right now. But what I will say about this group is this, okay, the tenacity by which they play with, and this is a smart group. They make adjustments and they don't get beat off the same plays twice. And, and because of that, what, what I saw was I saw a defense as the game wore on and they started to recognize those tendencies, they adjusted to those tendencies and they were able to pick their moments and exploit it. And maybe that comes from the communication on the sidelines, or maybe it just comes from the fact that, you know, this is a smarter, higher IQ defense, and we're starting to see what they're worth. Yeah, they'll give up yards in between the 20s, okay? But to, you're going to have to knock this team out if you want to truly beat them. And so far, after five out of six games, one being canceled, we have yet to see a team that can truly put this team away. Because going into the fourth quarter, they always feel like if they're close enough, they're reachable, they will beat you. They meaning this Trojan team. You, you talked about a few specific guys. I, I want to let you go on uh, Talanoa Hufanga. This is a guy, uh, he had, he, sorry, he had that, that big interception in this game. This is four games in a row now that he has an interception. And, and oh, by the way, 
Uh, he forces that fumble on the punter. Uh, he has two tackles for loss. He has 17 tackles against UCLA. He had 18 tackles against UCLA uh, last year. The only game that he does not have an interception this year was the first game against Arizona State. He led the team with 10 tackles and, and forced a fumble in that game. I mean, it's you, you've played with some, some pretty talented safeties. What have you seen from him, and, and where is he right now in terms of when you're talking about great USC safeties? To me, it, it feels like he's got to be up in there in, in, with a small handful of guys in that discussion. And, and that's not a position at USC – that is not a position that you break into that discussion easily. Mark Carey, Joey Browner, uh, you're talking, you know, I played in the secondary, you know, um, in, in the more modern era, so to speak, the ESPN highlight era. I played with the great Troy Palomalu. Talanao Hufanga is right there. Instinctually, he is right there. He sees the field like Junior Seau from the safety position. Okay, and from a coverage standpoint, and this is blasphemy for me to even say this, he's a better cover safety than Troy Palomaro was. Troy is great, hovered around the line of scrimmage, but when you talk about an open field, because Troy was so instinctual, okay, Hufanga sets his plays up. He understands angles better than any safety I've seen since Troy. Okay, that pick six that, that ended up getting called back, but it was still an interception. Okay, the way that he set that angle up, he was in what they call an ink position or inside technique. Okay, and he knew that that would allow for the receiver to, to, to run a speed out. And the angle that he came downhill, jumped in front of the route, demonstrates how confident he is in his angles and understanding of his, his position and his ball skills. Okay, he is very special. And I saw that the, the first time you and I were on a sideline, okay, and I watched him play, I thought he was special then. But what he's been able to do when he's on the field, he changes the game. You know, this was the game when he had another uh, 17 tackles. It's, it's, it's incredible how he is always around the ball or he's always impacting the game. And I, and I think Isaiah uh, Polamau benefits from that and he's the nephew of Troy Palomalu and I love Troy like I said spent four glorious years in the secondary learning from him learning with him and playing alongside of him but Hufanga is as special as they come and if there was if there was a, a, a Mount Rushmore before it's all said and done of just safeties at USC Hufanga could find himself up there on that list when it's all said and done. If we were to pull tape and watch every safety from the Mark Carriers of the world, like I said, to, to some of the greats who, um, you know, they're going to kill me for not even mentioning their names. Because I mean, yeah, uh, Ronnie yeah, Lott was like a corner. Ronnie Lott's in there. I mean, that, that's yes. just the guys you mentioned. Yeah, that, that is a, that, that's an incredible group. Yeah, and, and, and I put him right up there. Okay, the best safety that I've seen at USC since Troy Palomalo. And there have been some great ones that have come through this program, but none that have the, possessed the instinct that he does. I'm telling you now, if you put him in the box, which USC should, should strongly consider doing more often, he will cause havoc. You know, um, he will fill up a stat like Pacquiao fills up um, a, a, a box, a stat sheet, you know, in boxing. 
he's going to check off all the boxes, tackles for losses, sacks, interceptions. He, he, and, and he's consistent. And that's what you love about the energy that he brings to this game. Yeah, I, I feel like we should really, you know, if there's two more games for USC, really embrace that. I, you know, nobody has said anything about kind of plans at this point uh, for leaving early for the draft or, or coming back next year or anything like that. But there, there's a real chance that this is his last season at USC if he does ultimately decide uh, to go early for the draft. It, it's a, you know, you, you don't want to say it. It's a disappointing career for fans in that he was hurt often. Yes. And then this season, the way he's playing this season to be shortened, to be kind of cheated out of, potentially, you know, four, five, six more games of the way he's playing this year feels like, oh man, that, that is, that is, okay, Eric, but you uh, want to there, embrace there, there's, But game. there's one player. Okay. Um, and there's a few players that, that, that kind of fit this mold. But for me, I didn't see a lot of Jason Seahorn when he was at, when he played at USC, but was he not a better uh, pro uh, corner than he was at USC? If sure. ever. Okay, my point is this, because we've only seen flashes of Hufanga, you almost get the sense that if this is his last year, his best years are so far ahead of him that we may find that he's a greater pro um, potential player, uh, barring that he can stay healthy, than he is a, a collegiate player. Because the mere fact that we haven't seen him in a full season yet where we can really, where USC is playing for something that matters, right? <laughs> on, on a high scale, a high level. You, you're, we're almost taken for granted because our eyes, our, the eye discipline is focusing so much on the offense and focusing in so many different areas that, that unless you really go back and you just admire the, the beauty by which he plays with and the speed by which he plays with, it's checkers and chess. And I know that that, uh, that cliche has been used a lot, but when you get someone who is a savant who understands football and he is just one step ahead of the offense when he puts himself in position to make plays, you don't just stumble on 17, 18 tackles a game. You know, it's because you understand where the ball is going to go and where the weaknesses are on your defense. And, and you're in, you put yourself in position and you get there faster than the next player. His motor is always running, but it's running with, with purpose. And that's what I love about when I watch him play. And there's a lot of other players on this defense that I, I'm just enjoying the opportunities. You know, um, we see a young, small uh, frame, kind of like myself, Max Williams. We wonder going into this game, how would he, you know, kind of hold up? And I thought he did. I thought he held himself well. This, this kid does not flinch. Uh, he sacrifices his body. He understands what is being asked of him when he's playing that nickel position, which is really a hybrid outside linebacker position, but, but played by a, a smaller defender, a corner. And usually corners, when they play that position, when you ask them to sacrifice their body against a pulling guard tackle or, or um, a tight end, those are business decisions. And you don't see him making that executive decision. He does what is best for the team. Oh, he always... Max Williams should teach a class in taking on a, a block from a <laughs> massive offensive It will not show up on the stat sheet. Those are plays that will that those are winning plays. Those are absolutely winning plays. 
I, I'm, so let's wrap it up with this and, and let you talk a little USC defense some more. Uh, Arizona State kind of, you know, runs all over them and, and they don't put up a, a ton of points, uh, obviously not enough to win the game, uh, but, but they score a couple touchdowns. UCLA now at the end of the season uh, racks up, you know, passing yards, rushing yards, and, and they score 38 points. So it feels like if you're just talking about kind of success in those two games, you know, it, it, it didn't get better, but, but there were improvements throughout the year. And, and it feels like kind of the way you feel about the USC defense is different uh, than it was at the beginning. But, but I'm curious, kind of your take, what you've seen, kind of the, the growth on that side of the ball, where they are now uh, compared to where they were at the beginning. And now you've got maybe Washington, maybe Oregon, but, but a one final big uh, in-conference game coming up on Friday. Um, not, not your expectation in terms of matchups, but the way they're playing right now and sort of, again, that, that development over the course of the season that you've seen from that side. You know, I'm actually more bullish than, than maybe the stats indicate when it comes to USC's defense. Because if you go back to that Arizona State game, who gave them more fits than anybody else? It was Jaden Daniels. Jaden Daniels ran the ball for 11 carries for 111 yards. Okay. If you take that out of the equation, um, there was very few pop plays. Plays that you said, man, USC is just getting gashed. Okay. And then, you know, and, and, and then, then you go back to Arizona, uh, a slew-footed um, quarterback in Grant Gunnell, he ran for 40 yards, but those 40 yards extended plays. G granted, Gary Brightwell, he got off, you know, but, but again, there was a pop play where he got off. Other than that, um, we watched USC going into the uh, Utah game really start to turn things on and really get a good handle on what they were trying to, to accomplish. And then that's when we saw the production in the running game really come down where no running back had a really meaningful or impactful game. Against UCLA, I thought early on in that game, the best player on the field was Demetri Felton, but he only rushed for 90 yards. And, and, and uh, DTR, uh, Dorian Thompson-Robinson, he had 50 yards. And, and, but at any there was no time during that game, even when he threw 30 of 36 for 364 yards, four touchdowns. There was no time where I felt like, oh, man, USC's off uh, defense is just always playing catch up. Uh, yeah, they got caught in alignments, but you saw them make those adjustments. So while uh, some would call this a bend but don't break, I actually think that this is a flex defense. This is a defense that will figure out along, um, uh, as the game wears on. And, and they're almost like a python. They start to kind of suffocate you and really kind of condense you um, because their players seem to get better as the game progresses. We're constantly talking about um, Drake Jackson or, uh, in, in the fourth quarter making plays. Marlon Tuipilotu making plays. And his brother now making plays. And we're talking about them at crucial times of the game. Players like that just don't show up you know, uh, by accident. They show up because they're better conditioned, they're better athletes, and over time, the athleticism and, and, and the, the, uh, the high caliber of the player overwhelms you over the course of 60 minutes. And that's what we're seeing. We're actually seeing a defense that needs another three games to really demonstrate how great they could be, but right now, they're just good enough. 
and being good enough is good enough to get you through the Pac-12 South. I don't know what it's going to do in the Pac-12 championship, but I'll tell you this. There's something special about watching this team play and how much they love and enjoy playing with one another, Eric, that I enjoy seeing. So this game, when they come back and they, you know, and they rally from behind to win 43 to 38, they recognize, they meaning this defense recognizes how talented their offense is and that they just have to get the ball back when, when the offense needs it in order for, for that offense to be explosive. And so in an air raid, when you, when, you, when you run an air raid defense, I mean offense, your defense is going to oftentimes be impacted, being on the field too long. But when you run the ball with purpose the way that USC ran it this week, it gives the defense a chance to catch their breath so that when you need them most deep in the fourth quarter, they show up. And so if I had to kind of rank them, I don't know if you can, because in this new era where everybody gives up points, you almost have to look at it as for the impact plays that they make. And this team makes a ton of impact plays that you can win with. You may not win the um, you know, uh, down by down battles, but they certainly win their fair share of one-on-one big plays. Yeah, and, and the USC defense, they're, they're not gonna have a ton of time to recover here. They're coming off a short week and whether it's Washington or whether it's Oregon on Friday, they're going to come play against a rested team. And, and they won't have to travel. It'll be at the Coliseum. But uh, that is it, – it's a significant disadvantage, I, I think, that USC has going into this game. USC will have played two straight weeks on short rest against a, a team that didn't really have to play to win uh, its, its division championship was able to, to, whether it's Washington, whether it's Oregon, was able to kind of slide in, into that game uh, without winning it outright. So it feels like the defense is going to need, you know, one more performance, at, at least something. Give, give the offense something uh, to build on. And it's, it, these are, it's not Alabama. It's not Notre Dame, right. Washington right. and Oregon. I, you know, I think we've seen that this year, that these are, these teams are fine, but Oregon's not, you know, what the thought might have been about them uh, coming into the season. And, and Washington is kind of that, that run first team that, that maybe USC can match up against. But uh, it's a quick turnaround, and that was an emotional game. Coming back and winning like that, you saw some of the kind of the locker room celebrations yes. and that sort of thing. That, that is a quick turnaround when you were pouring out that much emotion uh, yep. on a on a late Saturday night, and then you've got to turn around and get right to practice on Sunday. I, I think that's going to be sort of a a fascinating challenge for this well, defense that that's got to turn around quickly and play right. on Friday night. But but I will say this, okay? When when you go up against a Chip Kelly coached team at UCLA, and you have to adjust to all of those different formations, it's going to be fresh in your mind what it felt like to have to adjust. So if you, if you find yourself because of a COVID protocol, depending on what happens, if it's Washington, okay, you understand what you're going to have to do to adjust to a Washington team, okay? But if it's Oregon, you're accustomed now to going up against those multiple formations, speed and tempo. But the difference is that the quality of talent is, is better, significantly better at Oregon than perhaps it is at UCLA at the moment, okay? But what I'm trying to get at is this. 
oftentimes when you're preparing for a prize fight, you want to spar against somebody that can show you the type of matchup that you're going to face. And now USC, not only do they have that on film, but they've just experienced it. And riding the wave and the momentum is going to be crucial. But this will be a game where the offense has to get off to another fast start to give the defense a chance. You're almost going to have to spot the defense 12 to 14 points because they may come off flat simply because they exerted so much energy in the game that required so much of them. You give up 549 yards, you know, 185 yards on the ground. Um, it just takes its toll on you. But it was only 70 plays, 79 plays rather. It, it wasn't like it was 100 plus plays. So again, this is a team that's accustomed to playing up-tempo against up-tempo um, offenses. But the emotions of having to come out of this game, that's the one thing you worry about on a short week. Can they manufacture the emotions? Can they recover physically fast enough um, to be able to, to give their best effort? It's going to take every bit of that if they're going to steal a victory and, and win the game at home. And I say steal the victory because, again, they have to overcome more emotion than the team that they're playing. And so right now, USC going into the Pac-12 championship game, a, a place that many people thought they would be at, at this point in the season, but not a path, I think, that, that a lot of people saw them taking it in terms of uh, how each game played out and, and final scores. But I think if, if you're USC, if you're a, a USC player, you'll take it. One opportunity to prove that, that you're Pac-12 champs. And so that's going to be a... A tall task, like we mentioned, kind of with the circumstances that, that are facing them. But uh, if, if there's if this team has proven anything, it's that they'll be in this game uh, no matter how kind of it, it plays out early. So th this should be a fun one to watch, I, I think, on Friday night. And so we'll have a, a quick turnaround time uh, as, as we prep for that game. Again, USC set to host Washington. And, and by the time you hear this, maybe, maybe set to host Oregon. Uh, hopefully USC is able to get kind of a, a quick decision on who their opponent is going to be. But for our look back at, at USC's thrilling win over UCLA in the 90th edition uh, of that crosstown rivalry, USC pulls out a, a 43 to 38 win over the Bruins for Monday morning quarterback for Daryl, for Daryl Rideau. This is Eric McKinney. Thanks for listening to We Are SC.